Hi everyone, this is Isabel Matreja, Marketing Manager for International Affairs, the Journal of Chatham House. This is the fourth episode of our podcast mini-series, Reflections at 100, which celebrates our century-old archive. In this episode, we look at our latest archive collection on 100 years of refugees and migration, edited by Emily Venturi. Emily looked at a huge amount of work from the journal and has selected 20 articles that show how this topic has been understood in our pages. The collection is split into four themes, looking first at the growth of the international humanitarian and human rights regime, the concept of citizenship, global responses to refugee crises, and finally the case of Palestine. In these episodes, we speak to guest editors about putting together the collections and what we can learn from the articles. Then we speak to the contributors to get into the detail about the articles and case studies themselves. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking to guest editor Emily Venturi, who is a fellow at Chatham House. Then I'm going to dive more deeply into UK refugee policy and women's experiences of migrant detention with Ali Bilgich from Loughborough University. I hope you enjoy. So first off today, we are speaking to Emily Venturi, who is the editor of this archive collection. Emily began her career at the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees and now is an Academy Associate at Chatham House, where we had the pleasure of getting to know her, where she works in the Asia-Pacific programme, specifically researching China and international cooperation, but all with a focus on the implications for refugees and migration. So Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So to start off, obviously there's a lot to talk about here in a hundred years of refugees and migration, but could you tell me about some of the key significant historical factors or events that have been driving refugees and displacement over the last century? Yes, well, this is a very large ranging question, impossible to do it justice. But I think what's important to firstly note is that forced displacement is something that has occurred consistently across histories, across geographies, due to a variety of compounding drivers. What we see in the archive, for example, is war and conflict emerge as key drivers of forced displacement. So, for example, uh, following the journal's founding in 1922, the journal covered the displacement arising from World War I and World War II in Europe very extensively. Throughout the archive, we then come across authors addressing displacement arising from the genocide in Cambodia, war in Afghanistan, war in Syria, and so forth. Another key driver that emerges is colonization and the process of decolonization as well. We see the persistent legacies that have arisen from the edification of borders. For example, in the archive collection, we have articles discussing the case of the Great Lakes region and the case of Palestine. And lastly, when we broaden the discussion towards human mobility in general and adjust the broader issue of migration, we then also start to introduce a wider set of factors such as labor markets, global supply chains, poverty and access to resources, among others. So this introduction is initial and not exhaustive, but hopefully it provides some background context to when we think about key historical factors driving migration and displacement. Yeah, of course. I mean, as you said, there are so many different factors, but that was a good, good introduction. And thinking now about the archive collection and the research and who has been doing that research in the collection, 
Could you tell me a bit about the factors that have influenced the writing on refugees and displacement? So the archive really is a fantastic opportunity to trace factors and the evolution of how authors and policymakers have written on refugees and displacement. In the early years, what we see in the archive is many humanitarian appeals. A lot of discussions took place at Chatham House on the logistics, on the budgets of how to resettle and relocate many displaced people across Europe, uh, specifically after World War II. We also see discussions on working relationships of aid agencies with governments, and we get into the nitty-gritty of what, in 1949, Sir Arthur Rucker described as the largest mass transportation agency in the world when it comes to the International Refugee Organization at the time. Later on throughout the archive in the 1970s, what we see instead is the increase in the legal and the political depth of analysis on refugee issues. Here we see that the edification and the development of the international human rights regimes and legal norms strongly affected how authors were addressing refugee issues. And Baroness Rosalind Higgins' article in 1973 is a key example of this. Most recently, in contemporary writing, we noticed the role of national security playing a stronger emphasis on how writers have thought about refugee issues and immigration issues, often with contrasting results. Lastly, I would also say that when we think about the factors influencing the writing within the journal's archive, it's also important to address its limitations and the limits to the featured perspectives within the archive. So, for example, um, the limited representation of female authors and authors from outside Europe hinders the collection's ability, unfortunately, to paint a comprehensive picture of refugee and migration academia and policy. Some of the specific blind spots of the archive include contributions of authors from outside Europe to the development of the international human rights system, refugee and migration issues in Latin America, and the analysis by national authors in large refugee crisis contexts such as Syria, Afghanistan and the Sahel. Before we go any further, I think it'd be helpful to start talking about the origin of these ideas that we're talking about. So obviously, refugees, migrants, displacement and citizenship are all different terms I think sometimes can get intermixed. So could you tell me a bit about where these the terms come from or the movements come from? This is an excellent question and I actually think this is a question that the archive can lend a fantastic perspective and diversity of perspectives to. So the standard definition for refugee that is currently used is the 1951 Refugee Convention definition. Obviously, the archive starts in 1922, so it's important for readers and listeners to be aware that definitions changed throughout the decades um, and the writings on refugee issues. I think uniquely, what the archive also enables us to do is to take a wider perspective beyond legal definitions of refugeehood and reflect more broadly on the issue of citizenship. The collection traces very different perspectives, assumptions and critiques on the relationship between the individual and the state and how these have evolved across time and space. For example, um, we can read about British statesmen during the British Empire discussing definitions of British subjecthood. And this is an example of the role of language and definition in exercising colonial control and in the persistent legacies still today. Early on in the archive, we also noticed the tendency of authors to refer to minorities and refugees as problems. Yet again, another example of how language edifies consciousness and edifies how we then think about specific policy 
issues. And unfortunately, if we look at the broader political context, such negative language still persists often today. We also see different perspectives. So, for example, the archive includes a contribution by Kampala International University Chancellor Mahmoud Mamdani and his examination of citizenships in the Great Lakes regions through a case study of the Banya Rwanda and really challenging assumptions of citizenships of borders and of the formation of political communities. Ula Khadum analyzed the transnational relationship instead between Shia Islam in Iran and Iraq and its diasporic population in London since the 2003 invasion of Iraq, providing a very different lens of analysis, encouraging us to think transnationally and to think on issues such as religion and identity formation. So hopefully what you can see here is I think that the archive collection really shows us a powerful diversity of analysis and allows us to bring together different disciplines and to interrogate definition of refugees and of migrants outside of legal definitions and bringing together different disciplines and different geographies to do so. Absolutely. And all those articles Emily mentioned are free to access in the collection right now. So do go and read them if you want to know more. So moving on, I think we've we touched a little bit on World War II and kind of war as a driver of migration and refugees. I think in the West or in the UK, it's something we talk about a lot with World War II. So I wonder, you know, what started to happen after World War II and what systems were put in place? So because of Chatham House's position in the UK and the International Affairs Journal's founding before World War II, I think the journal was in a unique position to really bring together a lot of debates on the subject, which renders it really interesting for our study today. So after World War II, we see European communities and states facing the challenge of reportedly 40 million people who had been displaced from their home countries. This was a logistical challenge. This was a policy challenge. Grave vulnerabilities were also at stake. And so what we see is the gradual setup of coordinated relief agencies in Europe. The first paper in the collection is indeed Arnold Forster's address at Chatham House in 1945, where he draws on his work with the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, the first international organization dedicated to assisting displaced people in Europe. We can then actually trace the institutional development to the International Refugee Organization, when in 1948 Sir Arthur Rucker addressed Chatham House as its deputy director. And finally, we see the establishment of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, which integrated the international refugee organization's functions and further expanded them and codified them legally. So we see that we have a lot to draw from when it comes to the archive's ability to distill those early years of the refugee protection system in Europe. But it's also important to remember that the archive's content does focus on Europe and voices from outside Europe describing what was happening elsewhere at the time, and the intellectual and practical contributions to the setup of the system, unfortunately, are missing from the archive collection. So yeah, as you said there, the legal systems kind of start to get put in place. And I think these big kind of UN agencies that we know very well now. But I wonder if the archive tells you anything about what an ideal global refugee regime might look like. Well, well, that's a big question. Um, I think especially in the later years of the archive as well, we start seeing a variety of different critiques and of challenges to the international refugee system that really help us diversify how we think about certain assumptions. I think a key point to make within this question is really the importance of the human rights principles that underpin the right to asylum and the right to international protection. And I think the archive does illuminate 
both the genesis of these principles as well as their continued relevance. So, for example, Jamal Barnes and Samuel Makinda resounded the continued importance of international refugee law in their analysis of how states have enacted and increased migration deterrence, pushbacks, expulsions, border closures, and arbitrary detention during the COVID-19 pandemic, which saw an increase in border closures for pandemic control. So Barnes and Mackinder's affirmation of the continued relevance of international human rights law is really important. However, they also do highlight contemporary challenges that still face the system. So for example, accountability and enforcement. Some other critiques that are presented in the archive's later years include the militarization of borders, how women are treated within the humanitarian system and within policy documents that address vulnerable populations such as refugees, the continued practice of immigrant detention in Britain, and the encouragement to think transnationally of cross-cutting themes such as identity and politics. One of the sections in the archive looks specifically at Palestine, and I wondered why you chose to have a section on Palestine when there are, you know, so many examples of displacement around the world. So reading through the archive, the case of Palestine was one that was consistently treated throughout the journal's history, probably also as a result of British colonialism as well and the position of Chatham House. So this allowed us to put together a geographical case study that helps us illustrate the evolution of how the journal has treated the Palestinian refugee issue. It also enables us to trace the evolution in its authorship. So, for example, in the early years within the archive, we can read John Woodhead's address at Chatham House during the British Mandate for Palestine. Woodhead indeed reported on the outcomes of the Woodhead Commission to draw up the partition of Palestine. But then if we fast forward and skip ahead in the journal's long history, we can read Palestinian political analyst Ahmad Khalidi's 1995 outline of Palestinian security needs. And here, He includes the psychological security of Palestinians in the diaspora as a key security concern. And he argues that the right to return, for example, has a significant psychological security dimension and helps us expand definitions of security within the archive. So I think it's interesting to also present this geographical case study to zoom in and really see how the journal has evolved over the century in, unfortunately, one of the key refugee contexts that still persists today. So looking forward, it seems likely that we will see more displacement in coming years. So I just wondered what there are new factors that might be impacting that, which we haven't seen kind of in the early years of the archive or, you know, that we're impacting 100 years ago. Indeed. So as the journal marks its first century, approximately 90 million people worldwide are forcibly displaced at the end of 2021. So this unfortunately shows us that Not only is forced displacement still occurring, but it's unfortunately increasing. And I'd say Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022 was a stark reminder of this. There are some factors, I think, that can unfortunately compound forced displacement. One of these is climate change and its effect, especially on low-income countries that are particularly exposed to the effects of climate change and the consequent displacement due to certain environments becoming inhabitable or due to the need to access natural resources such as water. Another factor that also could affect and increase displacement is state fragility and socioeconomic security. And a recent example for this is the Venezuelan case. And here what we see is, unfortunately, the occurrence of structural 
conditions of instability and fragility and insecurity, which actually take us beyond the 1951 definition of refugeehood that focuses on individual persecution and encourage us to think more broadly about structural situations of fragility and insecurity and how this affects communities more broadly. And lastly, I think a key question, both for academics and for policy, is how to treat asylum and migration in a world where displacement drivers continuously become more intertwined and more complex, and where the two phenomena are more difficult to distill and often occur in conjunction. So, final question. What are the main things you learned from putting together this collection? Was there anything that surprised you? I think this was a really fantastic project to work on. And yes, I I do have a few key takeaways to share. I think firstly, it was a unique experience to really think about refugees and migration from a broad variety of disciplines and methodologies of assessment. Sometimes it's easy to get overly legalistic. And so in the International Affairs Archive, we really draw from a variety of disciplines from you know, the logistics of humanitarians in the 20th century to transnationalism and politics today. I think on a more serious note, also one can really not discuss the establishment of European headquartered international relief agencies and the origin of refugee definitions without also examining other phenomena such as colonialism's consequences on land ownership and citizenship that still really affect displacement today. So I think this archive collection exercise is, I think, a great result in bringing together these different perspectives and encouraging us to really think broadly about what factors have influenced displacement in the centuries and what legacies still persist today. I think another takeaway has really been to see the consistent role that refugees and migrants have played across histories and geographies and really the distinctly human nature of this area of the study of international relations. And on the flip side, it's also been disheartening to see the continuation of negative language that has been used to describe groups that are very vulnerable, both in academia as well as in policy speeches. And also, I would say, the absence of authors with lived experience within the archive. And maybe this is something that the journal can definitely look towards in future years. And finally, I think a key takeaway that comes from any archival work is really the importance of the notion of selective history. And this is a notion that two authors actually within the archive, Nibi Manchanda and Shari Plonsky, caution against. And I think it really is worthwhile to be cautious of you know, the risk of reinforcing skewed narratives such as Eurocentrism and humanitarian saberism when we edit archives that might not include and address all the perspectives that they should be including and addressing. And so I think this is also a key takeaway both for readers to bear in mind when reading through this archive collection, uh, but also for us to think about the role of a high-profile journal such as International Affairs in scholarship and practice on refugee and migration and how it takes it forward in its second century, which is, I think, a great moment for reflection, um, stock-taking and and looking ahead. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Emily. All of your reflections and, and questions posed are really important and really interesting. So. Thank you so much for being here, Emily, and we'll speak to you soon. Thanks for having me, and I hope you enjoy reading through the archive collection. I'm here today with Ali Bilgich. Welcome to the show, Ali. Hello, thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. So, 
Ali is a reader in international relations and security at the University of Loughborough. You've got quite broad experience in security, Turkey, the Middle East, but also on migration, which is what we're going to be talking about today. So in 2021, Ali published a piece in International Affairs with Athena Guti titled Who is Entitled to Feel in the Age of Populism? Women's Resistance to Migrant Detention in Britain. So that's what we're going to be getting into. So to start off with, you talk a lot about anti-immigrant sentiment and how it's linked with populism. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Anti-immigrant sentiments or anti-immigration sentiments in in Britain uh, are not new particularly uh, after the Second World War, when new groups of migrants arrived for post-war reconstruction in Britain, they, they faced lots of racism. As we know, uh, with Rush Generation, we, we are very much familiar with their experiences uh, right now. But this is also the country where uh, Rivers of Blood speech was made, and this is the country of National Front from 1970s and 80s. So anti-immigrant sentiments were not new in Britain. However... Until recently, this kind of anti-immigrant sentiments or ideologies pretty much were in the fringes of mainstream politics until the last 10-15 years, at least. So what we have seen is that as anti-immigrant sentiments of small populist groups, populist parties in Britain, they started to express these opinions in order to not to lose votes, center parties, either on the right or left, they started to adopt their language, which has led to populism's creeping into mainstream politics in the United Kingdom. So right now, uh, when we look at different political parties' policies on immigration, including the current government, we can basically see lots of populist policies, such as, I mean, we can discuss a bit later, if you like, like Rwanda policy or putting the Navy on the channel or detention, as we discussed in the article. So I think it is important to answer the First question here, what makes populism different here? Populism or populist political actors uh, rely on a dichotomy, basically multiple dichotomies, people versus establishment, uh, nation versus foreigner. But there's always this pitching, people versus the other, self versus the other. And of course, in this way, they simplify the politics because it offers a, a very basic understanding of complex, extremely complex and multifaceted political issues such as such as immigration. So if politics become populist, policies are not based on knowledge, expertise, science, testing, evidence, but the politics has become something that can be easily summarized in a tweet or a Facebook message to make quick political gains. So what we see here when it comes to immigration in Britain, instead of understanding the complexities of the issue of immigration or why people are crossing the channel in in boats, why we shouldn't be sending asylum seekers to Rwanda, instead of discussing this, we are seeing an approach in the last maybe 10 years with the hostile environment onwards. We are seeing a very simplified understanding of immigration management, migration governance, that is pretty much, again, pitching the nation against certain bad immigrants. And a very good example, again, uh, I like to hear is the, for example, putting Navy on the, on, on the channel. There were lots of, from the Navy itself, there were some criticisms to that policy and it didn't work. And the government had to finally, a few weeks ago, they stopped this policy because it actually increased the number of crossings rather than deterring them. 
When it comes to Rwanda policy, again, instead of we have absolutely no information as to if this policy could actually deter any, any immigrant. Apparently, there are some criticisms from the Home Office bureaucracy again to this policy. And if, if, you, if you remember, the Home Secretary herself used the ministerial position to push for this because it was necessary for the government, for populist purposes, to have that photo shoot in Kigali, migrants, asylum seekers leaving the plane so it could be easily turned to political gain. In the, in the short term, without really understanding the important political and legal consequences of this potentially illegal policy. And this is what we are when it comes to populist immigration governance, and detention is part of it. Absolutely. So yeah, let's get into detention, because that's really the focus of this article. So in your piece, you call it Britain's detention as spectacle. So can you tell me a bit about, you know, what is the system like? And you worked with women specifically within that system. So what what impact did it have on them? It is quite interesting. Detention right now is so normalised as a policy. But it wasn't always a normal policy. It was an exceptional policy. In 1990s, for example, I mean, only a few hundreds of people were detained. And the detention centres certainly didn't like prisons. People were not wearing, wearing uniforms, for example. But things change. Right now, from 300 to 1990, to thousands, tens of thousands of people every year were detained in Britain's detention centres. When it comes to cost of detention, I'd like to highlight that too. In 2021 figures, a cost of per person per day in detention centres is £99. The total amount that we pay as taxpayers for detention is 95 million pounds only in 2021. This is a massive industry. It is a privatized industry. So there are many private companies making a lot of money from detention industry in Britain as well. So I'd like to highlight that too. But is it efficient as we are paying so much money to this policy? Is it efficient? An example, again, 2021 figures. All the people who were detained, 3,000 of them, and mainly were from Poland. Romania and Bulgaria, they were returned to their own EU countries. 3,000. 15,000 people were released back to society. 15,000. Five times higher than the people who were deported. So clearly it is not, it's not an efficient policy either, because the only reason why you detain, according to official discourse, is to make sure these people would be deported. So if you're not deporting them, they're released back to society, then why are they being in these prison-like conditions? So clearly it is not efficient. But how can we explain this policy? Because it, it, it rationally, it doesn't make sense. That's how I come to detention as spectacle concept. Detention as spectacle is a concept actually created by uh, Keta Mainwaring Main and uh, Stephanie Silverman. Uh, so I borrowed their concept and I, I contextualize that concept, detention as spectacle, in the populist politics that we, are, we have been experiencing in the UK. Detention as spectacle is basically looking at detention as, uh, as a show, as a performance to make quick political gains. It is, uh, it, is, it is not about efficiency. It is not about the substance. It is not about its, 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 its usefulness. It is more about... Is it working for certain ideological points? This, this is where we are when it comes to detention as spectacle. And it is mainly, and this is one of the things that I've been talking about uh, more in the article, is that it is 
appealing to anti-immigrant sentiments, emotions in, in the UK, those fears, those anger, those anxieties. That's why I ask, we ask that quest, question in the article, who is entitled to feel in the United Kingdom? Because right now, those who have these fears and anger and anxieties, these populist emotions actually are prioritized over the emotions of the people who are actually being targeted by this policy. Absolutely. So, okay, so let's talk about them. Obviously, we've just talked about kind of the wider context. And I think a lot of research looks at the policy angle, the kind of what's going on top down. But you chose to centre immigrant women and their emotions. So why did you do that? And what did you learn from it? In, in international relations and migration studies, there are amazing works and very critical works on how state-level migration policies are, are formulated, what they do, how they work, etc. That's great. And we learn a lot from them. However, my position since the start of my career is always this. When we make a choice as an academic on who we'd like to work with, this is a political choice. And through working with certain people, certain groups, who are, whose emotions, whose ideas are mainly silenced in the mainstream politics, you try to challenge that silence in the mainstream politics. So if you do not work with the people, understand their emotions, their ideas, their experiences, the people who are impacted by these policies, I don't think it is possible to understand what these policies actually do. And if we do not do that, we are inadvertently, we contribute to that silencing. As, as scholars. So that has been my point uh, since the beginning of my career anyway. Why women, uh, as a feminist and ally of LGBTQ, I know very well that peoples from different genders and different sexualities, experiences of policies are different. And this difference should be acknowledged. And this difference should be studied in order to see exactly what these policies do to different different people. And human experiences, in my case, and some of the people I work with, uh, as, as they were my interviewees, uh, they were also LGBT, belong to LGBTQ community. Their experiences of detention were different than the heterosexual male experiences in detention as a woman, uh, as, 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 as a gay person. So we try to bring their experiences into article as well, just to shed light on that area specifically. And can you just give me maybe an example of one person and their experience going through that detention system and how it actually felt for them? One example is that really, really stayed with me after, after our conversation. She was very young when she was detained and she came to Britain as a child. Uh, with her family, and uh, she she uh, she went to a very multi uh, multi ethnic diverse school in Britain, and she always thought that she was British, until the moment that they put handcuffs on her when she went to immigration reporting centre and put her in a van, van immigration detention van, this home office van, by uh, uniformed security guards, and then detention experience for her was that she realized that she wasn't British. She went through quite a challenging emotional dissonance about herself in the detention process. 
when she was out. And that was uh, one of the biggest things that I learned from the people I had conversations with is that when they were released from these prison-like conditions, by the way, one thing that I like to mention is that Britain is the only European country which doesn't have time limits for detention. So when you're in detention center, you don't know when you will be out. This is unacceptable. Even prisoners know <laughs> they will be out at some point. So when they were out, when this person was out from detention, she, she told us that she didn't feel like British anymore. She lost that identity. And this is something what detention does. It takes away people from the communities they were part of. They severed that bond. It damages their psychology, their emotional being, their well-being, uh, their health, and they release back. For what? As, as basically people who were pretty much traumatized by this experience, who do not even feel part of British society anymore. So is it really doing any good, this policy, by putting these people in detention? I think that's, that's the biggest question that we should, we should ask. One of the interviewees said when she was walking around, She's always defensive. She's always expecting something to happen to her. And uh, she even sometimes thinks that the whole British society is responsible for the trauma uh, that she had to go through. So this kind of breaking the bonds of migrants, of asylum seekers, by the way, all the people that I interviewed, we interviewed were asylum seekers, breaking that bonds with broader society is incredibly damaging and with no good reason, apparently very difficult to hear. So you wrote this piece in 2021. And since then, we've had, you know, some really well publicized moments of migration and refugee movement, you know, particularly from Afghanistan, as a result of the invasion of Ukraine. And obviously, you mentioned as well, the UK's new policy of sending people to Rwanda. So I just wondered if, you know, these kind of very big public moments have impacted your understanding of the system in the UK or if you would make any changes to your article as a result of these big movements? The first question, I think one thing that it became very clear, particularly regarding the Ukrainian refugees and the horrific experiences that we all witnessed in our homes, we watched their horrific experiences. Clearly, particularly the British government is creating a hierarchy between Asylum seekers, refugees, who British government would like to have because it works for the British government politically. I mean, because if you present yourself as uh, hospitable to Ukrainian refugees, it helps British foreign policy in general against Russia. Or when it comes to Afghan refugees, Britain managed to position itself as a hospitable country. But how these policies work, I think it is important to understand how these policies work a bit. Britain's migration regime is going towards asylum-seeking regime particularly, going towards a certain system, and the system is pretty much defined as a kind of vulnerable person's resettlement schemes. So this is how it works. UK government working with UNHCR. UNHCR picks some people in certain countries. They send the information to UK government, and UK government chooses these people if they should come or not. So basically, when, when in any person listening to this podcast hear that there are legal ways of asylum, that's the legal way that the government keeps repeating. The problem of this approach is that government decides how many people would get. For example, UK government say, I'm taking 5,000 people this year. I'm not taking one more. 
Another problem is that government can easily pick. I am picking doctors. I am picking engineers because they would work for our economy. For normal migration policies, this might work. But when it comes to asylum seeking, this approach is contradicting with with the refugee convention. Because seeking asylum, even if you arrive in a country illegally, is not a crime. This is one of the reasons why the potential Rwanda policy is potentially illegal. Because it is violating the convention that UK signed for decades ago. So these are the good refugees. These people who come through the resettlement scheme, the refugees that we like to have in Britain. But the bad refugees, those coming uh, through boats from the channel, using illegal ways, and they come here and apply asylum because it is their legal right. But clearly, they are the bad refugees. They are the bad asylum seekers. This hierarchy is what the migration, asylum-seeking regime is, is about nowadays. And this, this dichotomy, again, this hierarchy must be challenged at multiple levels because it is not working. Clearly, it is not working. There are many ways that this, these issues can be, uh, can be handled without sending people to Rwanda, actually. Uh, it is possible to work with France if there is any political willingness. It is possible to create, for example, uh, asylum processing centers in Kale if there is, again, political willingness. So I think you've started to talk about it a little bit there, but going forward, what changes would you like to see to the immigration system in the UK? First of all, uh, is to stop cr- criminalizing asylum seekers uh, and putting them in hierarchies as good asylum seekers or bad asylum seekers. Asylum seeking, even if you use illegal ways to come to a country, it's not illegal itself. It's not a criminal act as long as you uh, apply for asylum. Another thing that I like to mention, because sometimes it is also used legal legal way, is that you get a visa and then in the moment that you come to country, you apply asylum, which is fine. And you come through a legal, sorry, legal way, right? You have a visa to come to UK. And when you apply for asylum, Home Office often uses this visa against you in the way that if you are really an asylum seeker, for example, clearly, you know, you had means to apply for visa. You didn't tell us the truth when you come to, when you want to come to the country, etc. Even that way is, is, is very, very problematic. So that is these, some of the criminalizations that we are getting used to should go. We really need to go away from prison-like detention as a normal policy to detention as an exceptional policy. And most importantly, it wouldn't break that bond between asylum seekers, future refugees, with broader society. Because these people are going to be part of our society and they will enrich our societies. We need to make sure that they will not be alienated. We need to be inclusive here. I probably the most important thing here is to target the criminal networks, particularly when it comes to illegal illegal migration. Yes, there are criminal there are criminal networks like traffickers, smugglers. Absolutely, the way to target the criminal networks is not to punish the victim as we are doing it today in Britain by sending them to Rwanda. So, if you want to deter people to not to take the boats illegal crossings through the channel, then you work with the neighboring country, which is France here and Belgium, it might be another country in the future, and target these criminal networks instead of the people who are in need. 
But right now we are doing completely opposite. And uh, these are the main, I think, uh, three things that UK asylum regime should be like. However, that being said, I have a feeling that given where we are right now, we probably will think in the next few years the, the, the hostile environment days were actually the good days of British migration and asylum system. I don't think we are going in the right direction when it comes to asylum. Gosh, well, very stark words, maybe not a very hopeful future, but it's great to hear your insights and, and your advice on kind of what, what does need to change. So thank you so much, Ali. This was absolutely fascinating and great to hear from you. And to everyone listening, you can read Ali's article with Athena. It's part of the collection. So go and read that after this. Thanks so much, Ali. Thank you. No Christina this week, so you're just getting my takeaways. I think this episode was a particularly interesting and sobering one. Both Emily and Ali really stressed that there is a growing issue here. Not only the amount of refugees is increasing, but also that the policies that are currently in place aren't necessarily fixing the issues. So I think Ali's article really showed that, that while detention is increasing, it's not necessarily fixing the issue of displacement. So I think my main takeaway this week is that we need to be really careful and critical when looking at refugee policies. Do go and read the articles from the collection to understand more about this issue. They are all free to access during August, so go and download. Next time on Reflections at 100, we'll be looking at decolonization and how it's been written about in the journal, which should be a really interesting one. That will be out in October. See you then.